0: Yeah, so today we are, we're reading through the Bible together as a church using a resource called The Story. It's on the table over there, but it's the abridged NIV translation of the Bible. And we're at the part of the history of God's people where they are on the precipice of entering the promised land under Joshua's leadership. So it's, an, it's a really interesting part of Scripture. And there was certainly a, a big precedent for this happening. In fact, it was a precedent of... Of about a thousand years between when God made the made the promise to Moses that He would bring His people into the land, and then when the fulfillment of that promise. So I just wanted to re- to to go backwards a little bit for context, and look at uh, what God, how God spoke to Abram. I'm sorry, when he was, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years before the time when Israel entered the Promised Land. This is God speaking to Abram in Genesis 15. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all of these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in the country, not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. This is God prophesying to Abram about Several generations later, when Joseph's, when Joseph's uh, family and descendants would be enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh, and we, we learned a couple weeks ago about the great salvation that, Moses, that God brought to them through Moses, parting the Red Sea and swallowing up uh, Pharaoh's army in, in its wake. But again, this is hundreds of years before any of this happened. Verse 16, God says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. It's a curious statement. But God prophesies that in the fourth generation, Abram's descendants will come back to this land. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land... From the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. The land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cabanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Here we have a prophecy about something that would happen um, in the fourth generation. And God was was, uh, telling Abram what was to come. So hundreds, even a thousand years later, God meets with Moses. This is after Abram becomes Abraham, who has Isaac, who has Jacob, who has Joseph. This is generations later. Uh, God comes to Moses in Exodus 6, 2 to 8. And God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided, as foreigners. Here God is reminding Moses about this promise to give them the land of Canaan. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites, whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I've remembered my covenant. Remember we noticed this trend in the Old Testament that God hears the cries of his people as they cry out to him from captivity, and that triggers God to remember his covenant that he made with all the generations past. Um, Those things will always come together, hearing the cry of his people and remembering the covenant to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as possession. I am the Lord. This week's reading in the story is titled, The Battle Begins. And in this reading, uh, we find Joshua And God, and God begins to fulfill the word that he gave to Abram all the way back, 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 back in history. Fulfills the word that he gave to Moses way back in history. In this account that we're reading today, God reveals himself as completely faithful to his promises. Even though they seemed a long time in coming. So, first God called Abram, whose offspring became God's people Israel, And then God promised the people a land. He promised them a land of their own that he would dwell with them in. Um, And God's desire from the outset of this whole uh, covenant making was that humanity would return to a state of communion with God's presence. Remember in the Garden of Eden when mankind fell uh, the, the presence of God was kind of cut off from them. They didn't have that direct presence with God. But here there's sort of a, a desire to return to a land uh, where God's presence would dwell in a manifest way, you know, through the, through the temple, through the Ark of the Covenant, through the tabernacle, and God would dwell with his people. He would be their God and they would be his people. You can hear it in these words. So what we're seeing in our text today is God's promise being fulfilled about a thousand years after it was originally made. So certainly what we can learn from God as I pointed out several times in the service, is that no matter how long has passed, God's promises never fade. He always fulfills his promises. He always fulfills his covenant. And when he hears our groaning and hears our cries out to him, he remembers the covenant he made through Jesus' blood, and he blesses us as God's people today. So the first, the first part of, of, of today's reading that we're going to learn is that God is faithful to do what he promised, to give this promised land where other people are now dwelling, but they will now, it will now become the, the land of God's people. The second, this week's reading, is also a story about God's judgment of extreme human evil in, in uh, the promised land. If you remember in Exodus 34, when God passes before Moses, when God, Moses says to God, show me your glory, God passes before Moses and he shares this very intimate name with Moses. He says, it says, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents, to the third and fourth generation. Now God reveals himself as compassionate, slow to anger, gracious and forgiving to all who turn to him and change their wicked ways. And he maintains his love to thousands, uh, many more now than that, forgiving people's rebellion and sin. But God is just. He doesn't leave those who are guilty unpunished. I think that a God who completely looked the other way in the face of human suffering would be a God that we questioned his goodness. A God who looked the other way as evil reaches its heights and ultimately does nothing to restrain it or ultimately to stop it. You know, it would be very hard to live with an unjust God who just looked the other way. God gave ample opportunity, or God always gives ample opportunity For people to humble themselves, confess their sin, and be forgiven. And have their sins be separated from them as far as the east is from the west, like eternally. Um, God, in in his name, he says he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. But if people don't turn to God, they don't repent of their sin, they continue in wickedness, he doesn't leave the wrongdoers unpunished. Think, and if you think about recent, um, you know, atrocities in in the in the world that we live in, you know, there's all kinds of times when we say to ourselves, "I'm glad that God is ultimately just, and He will bring about justice, justice for people that went through the Holocaust, for instance." You know, th- this is just one of many atrocities in recent history uh, that we're glad that God is just and will bring about justice because. Some evil is so, is so so bad and so evil it just has to be dealt with by God. So he always gives people lots of opportunity to, to turn to him, to, to leave their sin. If people fail to do so, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. The tragedy of you know, the tragedy of the land of Canaan is that God's judgment was about to fall on them. This is the same judgment that. that that God had spoken to Abram in Genesis 15 when he said, In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back to Canaan, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. The sin of the Amorites in Canaan had not reached its full measure yet when God spoke to Abram a thousand years previous. But now, as Joshua and the nation of Israel are standing on the border of the Promised Land, God says, It is time. It is time. The sin of the Amorites, the sin of the Canaanites has reached its full measure, and it's time. It's time for judgment. It's time for my people Israel to get the land I promised to them through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and Joshua. And it's time for the inhabitants of this land to have the consequences of their wickedness come down on them. If you're wondering what the what, what, what sin of the Amorites was and what they had, wh- how they had progressed to such a point that literally it, needed the, literally it says the ground was cursed because of the way the people lived. It was, it, the sins that were happening in Canaan, many of, many of them, to someone in our world that is not a Christian, who doesn't have the same morality as maybe a Christian would have or same ideas about morality many, most people would be horrified at the sins of the Canaanites. They were mainly extremely perverse sexual sins and child sacrifice. You know, sacrificing children to their God, who wasn't a God at all, to Moloch. And so in this, if you, if you want to learn, we have the kids in service with us today, you know. If you want to learn what the sins of the Amorites were of the Canaanites, Look in Leviticus 18, and it tells you what those sins are. But mainly they're, they're in these categories of, of child sacrifice and re- extremely perverse uh, relations, um, which were, were basically enumerated in Leviticus 18, so you can see exactly what God is telling the Israelites to avoid, the sins of these people. And God had taken notice of the sin of the Canaanites, and what had become acceptable in the cultural, c- culture of Canaan. And as I said, God remarks that the land itself has been defiled because of the way these people are living. And God, from the time uh, that he spoke to Abram uh, about this judgment that, that would be coming, he had given hundreds of years to the Canaanites to either keep filling up the evil that they were doing, or to repent and turn to him. And we know that they knew about Israel's God because Rahab the spy who hid um, Joshua's men, she she had heard about the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob who had delivered Israel from Egypt. And she jumped in and became part of the family of God, Um, probably a temple prostitute. She became part of the family of God, part of the line of Christ. So people had heard about the God of Israel. They'd heard about his righteous deeds, his people, the law, everything that had come to them. And the people were melting, certainly with fear, thinking about this. But nonetheless, they continued to heap wickedness on top of wickedness and perversity on top of perversity. And they didn't use those, those 400 years of grace that God gave them to repent and turn the ship around, as many people um, have done successfully, and many groups of people have done successfully over the years of human history. And now the Amorites had stubbornly continued in their sin until judgment finally fell on them. So what we see in the battles of Joshua in the promised land is a unique moment in the history of God's people where God asks him to do something one time never to be be repeated in history so that his people could have the promised land and God could finally bring punishment on the guilty people of Canaan for their sins. Yes. Yes. You like that? Uh, I, I, I put that in, I promise. So God is doing two things through, through Canaan. Fulfilling his promise to give his people the promised land and bringing punishment on the Canaanites for their sins, human sacrifice, sexual immorality. And what we need to see this morning as we look into these, this story is neither of these purposes of God of giving the promised land or judging the people in it for their sins was brought about because of the power or the faithfulness of God's people. But they were brought about by God himself for God's own glory. We see this very starkly outlined for us in this interaction that Joshua, the leader of God's people, has with the commander of God's army. He sees an angel with a sword in Joshua 5 13. It says, Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Are you the good guys or the bad guys? We're the good guys. Right? That's Joshua. The angel of the Lord says, Neither. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. God was not on the side of Israel necessarily, or the enemies of Israel. God was on his own side, fulfilling his purpose. And whatever happens next, It's for God's will to be accomplished, not for any one side of this conflict to have a victory, but really God alone for his will to be played out. I think that's a great little anecdote to think about whenever we say, this is the good side, this is the bad side, I'm on the good side, God's on my side. It's good to remember, no, God's actually on his own side. He's impartial. And if we're not careful, we will have the same fate as people on the other side if we don't fear God and say, t- with Joshua, um, what, does, what message does my Lord have for his servant? You know, It's really a humbling thing to see that God was not on either side, per se. As, as, as we come into this, uh, this first battle where Joshua and uh, the people of Israel march around the city of Jericho, one thing that we need to remember is that, the, that Israel's people were way smaller and less experienced in battle and weaker than everybody in the Promised Land. All the Canaanites were giant people. They were people that were trained in war. Think David and Goliath. It's that kind of situation. That's why Joshua and the spies were melting with fear. Oh, well, that's why that's why the spies melted with fear when they went and saw the inhabitants of the land. They said, "We feel like we're grasshoppers compared to these guys." So we have to remember. God's people are, are far smaller and far weaker than the inhabitants of Canaan. In human terms, uh, they didn't have a chance to, to do anything in the Promised Land, to, to get any land or win any battles. Further, when these uh, people of God went into battle and they, if they got captured, you know the, the wickedness of this people was so great that think of the most heinous Torture that an enemy could inflict on their foe. And this is what these people were fearing. And that's why God tells Joshua four times before they entered the promised land be strong and courageous. And it's also why Joshua keeps telling his men, and they keep telling Joshua, be strong and courageous. They are terrified. They're not in a place of military or personal superiority or strength. They're frightened because they know they don't stand a chance. But with God, they decide to move in faith. And God says to them in Joshua 1:19, 1, 1, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. God is going to, to win battle after battle in Canaan despite Israel's relative weakness. And God's promise of giving the promised land to his people and God's judgment of the people of Canaan are going to happen by his own hand. The first battle recorded is the one that Jen alluded to in, in Jericho. Um, this is the one that everyone's heard about in Sunday school, right? Jericho had a 15-foot stone wall around it. It was topped by a mud and brick wall six feet thick and an additional 18 to 24 feet high. So huge city walls. And God commands his people to simply march around the city, with the Ark of the Covenant going out ahead of them, which, which was God's presence was, manifest in that Ark. And for six days, the Israelites just, the, the smaller Israelites just marched around the city following the Ark. And on the seventh day, God instructed the priests to blow the trumpets. And the walls just, pff, they just fell. That's what happened. There wasn't really a fight. They took the city easily. And the point of this story is that God is the one who will deliver his people. God is the one. It's not, and for us, you know, it's not Jesus plus good works. It's God is the one who saves us, right? And um, it's the same, same kind of point here. God is the one who will deliver his people. Israel has to learn to simply trust and obey and wait. Wait for God's word on what to do next. Um, in human terms, there's no way they could conquer this city, but God just, pff, the walls came down. So perhaps they were riding a wave of confidence, but the next battle is the battle of Ai, where Israel actually becomes defeated by the inhabitants of Ai. And the reason that this happens is that a man named Achan disobeyed God's command to not take any spoils of war. And then he also lied about it. So, I think lying to God, especially in this situation, is a very intimidating thing to do. So judgment fell on Achan and his family. And once that, that lie, that sin, was, was taken care of, God easily made the city of Ai fall to the Israelites. You know, God was doing stuff like hurling stones from heaven and making everyone feel confused. And, and like he was just doing all kinds of things only God can do. And he was winning these battles. The point of the story of Achan is that, you know, if <laughs> is God on Israel's side or is God on Canaan's side? Well, he's not on either of your sides now because you're, you're disobeying him and lying to him and now God's not on Israel's side anymore. It's, it, God's impartial and God will not be mocked, you know. God will single-handedly deliver his people if they trust and wait on him and if they do not sin by taking things into their own hands or try to fool or disobey God. Because if you step out of obedience, God's messages, you're not going to be able to make it. So these two stories of Jericho and Ai are right in the beginning of Joshua to make the point that if Israel is going to inherit the promised land, they have to be obedient and trust in God's commands. They don't get special treatment just because they are Israel. It should be brought out, and Jen did, did mention this, that in the Battle of Jericho, Israel was only successful because of the help of this temple prostitute named Brahab who hid Israel's spies when they originally scoped out the land. She had heard about the one true God, and she had turned, and she said, you know, if I will do this for you, please let my family and my, me be safe. Well, now another group of people comes uh, to Israel, and this is the Gibeonites. And they did, a, they did a deception towards Israel, saying, you know, we are from far away. We want to make a treaty with you because we fear your God. You know, make this treaty with us. And so without consulting God or looking into it, um, Joshua and his men make a treaty with the Gibeonites. And now they're allied with, they've complicated their relationship in the land, where they're now allied with this army. So if someone attacks the Gibeonites, it's like they're attacking Israel. They get pulled into those battles. But the Lord allowed this. And when an alliance of five kings attacked the Gibeonites, God promised Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. I've given them into your hand. Not not one of them will be able to withstand you. So Israel and and the Gibeonites, allied together, overtook these five kings all at once who had allied together. So God allowed this to let his plan be carried forward. So now we have Rahab, the Gibeonites sort of allied with Israel, uh, all all people that were non-Israelite born but who feared God in some way. In all of these battles that are mentioned uh, in the Promised Land, God is the one who had the victory fully, sometimes with no help, like in Jericho, and sometimes in cooperation with God's people and even the surrounding nations who allied with them. So in these circumstances of, of coming into the land, God accomplished his purposes of giving Israel the promised land. He swore on oath to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he accomplished his purpose of judgment on the Amorites, on the Canaanites, who had not repented of their sins. And in these two things, God had great glory. So there's a, there's a successful southern campaign, a successful northern campaign of the Israelites go through the land and with, with God's strength and, and help, they overcome the much larger, much more intimidating army. So God has revealed himself now t- as what he, what, he said to, what he said to Moses, the Lord who's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but not leaving guilty unpunished. Joshua gives two speeches at the end of the book which are very, very much like when Moses gave his speeches at the end of Deuteronomy. And Joshua reminds the people of how good God has been to them, how generous he's been to them, how he brought them into this promised land and rescued them from an army that was much far superior to them. And Joshua calls the Israelites to turn away from the gods of the nations that they've come into contact with, from the Canaanite gods, and to be faithful to the covenant that they made with God. And if they do, Joshua says, it will lead to a life and blessing in the land. But if they are unfaithful, Israel will call down on itself the same judgment the Canaanites experienced. They'll be kicked out of the land, and they'll have to go into exile. And so Joshua leaves. After seeing all of this, Joshua leaves his people with a choice. And this is where the book ends. Joshua 24, 14. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshiped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you. Then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. So what are the takeaways that we can take away from the story, this one-time event where God brought judgment on a people and simultaneously gave the promised land to his people? Well, first, as has already been said, you know, God is faithful to his promises and covenant. So faithful. Even if there's no living human who remembers what God's promise is, and covenant were, God will still be faithful to his covenant. Even if all of us forget God's covenant and promises to us, God will be faithful because God has sworn by himself to keep his covenant. Even if it seems a long time in coming, even if it seems impossible or unlikely, it says in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. And said he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish everyone to come to repentance this is who god is a god who keeps his promises we know that joshua faced literal battles in the promised land and we we know from deuteronomy 20 that god told israel to live at peace with the surrounding nations as far as it depended on them so this whole promised land uh battles were really a one-time thing that god called his people to so Joshua faced these, these literal battles that were very frightening to the point that he had to keep hearing, be strong and courageous, and keep saying it to his brothers and sisters as they went into the land. Many of us face struggles in our lives that are not literal battles where we're fighting with people, right? But we have, we have things in our lives that we're battling internally over, we're battling physically over, and we must remember that trusting in God and waiting on him are still the biggest, some of the biggest weapons we have in our arsenal. Trusting in God, waiting on him, consulting him, talking to him, cooperating with him are some of the biggest tools that we have as we face the things that we face. And Israel was successful when they, when they prayed and waited on God and trusted him for his timing, and likewise, so are we. But we must stop and pray and seek God before we barrel forward and get ourselves in trouble. One of the, th- the, the things that has struck me overall with this entire story is that we saw with God uh, in the battle of Jericho, God can do all of this on his own. Any battle God can win on his own. But his great delight is to ally himself with people, and work cooperatively with them towards his ends, towards what he's doing. As the battles continued and, you know, Jericho, they moved on from the Battle of Jericho, there was more stuff that God's people were called to do to cooperate with him. God was still winning the victory, but they were partnering with him in a way that pleased God very much. And this weaker Israelite army was able to win great battles. And I think this is how we are to view prayer, as cooperating with God we know that God can do anything. We know that he can answer any prayer at any time all by himself. But He desires to partner with us in the work of prayer. And I've seen it time and time again, that as we seek God's face, as we seek God for healing, as we seek God for deliverance, as we seek God for whatever it might be, you know, God is very pleased to work through our prayers. Uh, We we have someone in our district office whose uh, husband has been had COVID and has been very touch and go on life support, on and off the ventilator and our district superintendent David Lynn keeps on sending out updates to us saying pray for Matt Thornton, pray for him because I really believe that we are fight- we're fighting, this is like a cooperation we have with God um, there, there's something mysterious about prayer but there is, a, there is a cooperation that we have with God where we pray God acts we keep praying, God keeps acting we pray, pray and seek God for the next step. He gives it to us. We step into it. Then we ask again. You know, part of Joshua's problem, you know, the reason that they had some trouble is because they, they, they started getting confident in doing things that seemed right to them. Like, let's ally with the Gibeonites. This is a good idea. But they were being tricked by the Gibeonites, right? So now they're allied with these people that, you know, they're, they're, they're stuck with these people that they probably should have never made a, <clears throat> a treaty with. Again, God used that and God... Accomplishes pur- purposes through that. But I think that the way that we... Co- I think that this picture of, of Joshua and the Israelites coming into the Promised Land is very much a picture of what prayer is like for us. Co- we know that we can't change the world, but we know the God who can. And we can pray to God and ask him to do things. And we can c- continue to pray and bring things before God and see him move. You know, that's why we often will... Uh, follow the example of scripture, and you know, the, the, Jesus told the metaphor of the woman look, looking for justice from the judge. He just keeps on pounding on the door day and night, seeking justice. And eventually, the judge answers, answers the door. And I think that you know, God wants us to fight with these battles of faith, obedience, and prayer. It really does make a difference. Prayer does change things in a mysterious way. And it's a cooperation that we have with God. in carrying out his eternal purposes in our with our temporal words that we, we spit out. It's an amazing thing. It does, after all, say in the Bible that, you know, one man plants the seeds, one woman waters the seeds, but only God makes it grow. So, you know, we have this is, this is a picture of prayer, a picture of, of um, taking hold of this cooperation that God has for us. So I'm going to invite the worship team up just to sing, us a, a, we'll sing a closing song together, but... You know, this morning is just a time to, to consider this story, this history of what God's people went through. And really to, to consider that a lot of what they went through um, and how they followed God, though we're not being asked to do what they did, that was a one time thing. A lot of the ways in which they moved and, and acted are ways that we can also move and act in prayer, in simple faith, in obedience and seeking God continually, not just at the beginning, not just in, in the end, but in the middle, all the way through, as we walk towards accomplishing God's will in our lives in our day. Father, I pray that your people would know the God who calls himself the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. I pray that you would reveal yourself to your people, Lord, that you convict us where needed, you guide us into all truth, that we might follow you and be your people, the church. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dispersed. Go and be the church.